One thing that has been on my heart in recent weeks, I've been reading a book on discipleship and the key to discipling others within the body of Christ and how hearing the word of God is essential, but it's not necessarily sufficient when you, when you consider all that you need to have from the word of God as a Christian disciple. And one of the hallmarks of Anchorage Grace Church is we are discipling each other all the time, I think through relationships, but also in formal ways. Uh, 3D is our men's discipleship group that meets Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. De- developing Disciplined Disciples is the theme of 3D. And uh, we've uh, just kind of embarked upon a study of theology on Tuesdays where we're studying the sufficiency and authority and power of the Word of God So I would commend that to you men to come join me there on Tuesday mornings and then the conversation and study goes on uh, for Wednesday and Thursdays. But uh, it's at La Roma, which is off of uh, Old Seward Highway and uh, just Old Seward Road. And so be sure to come there and it's at 630 in the morning. So it's a great way to kick off. There's other studies. I know that Dave Perry has a Bible study at his home that meets in the week at 8.30 for those of you who uh, get to sleep in a little bit later uh, during the week. And then the women have several Bible studies. See the bulletin, Joanne Hedges. Joanna Hedges is in charge of that. I know Bonnie Perry has a lot of involvement. Also, we have Sunday school that happens uh, first hour in the 9 a.m. hour. Phil and uh, Shelly Cochran uh, are kind of spearheading that. Phil teaches on Sunday mornings. And I know there's another class, Todd Jackson and Mike Bellani are involved as well. So be sure to avail yourselves of all the ways to be connected with people, whether it's home groups or Bible studies or interacting in that way. Well, let's open now our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we're continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. These are the words of Jesus, and I want to read them now to you, verses 2 through 12, which cover the Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are eight Beatitudes listed in verses 2 through 12. We're looking at the final two over the next couple weeks. And these Final Beatitudes, being a peacemaker and being someone who's persecuted, tell you something about your Christian life. Your Christian life is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. As I read these verses and began to meditate upon them, I just had that thought, wow, the Lord has promised a hard path for me in the Christian life, and he has for all of us. The other Beatitudes that lead up to these two 
are talking about your heart attitude and how you're supposed to be before the Lord. And verses 9 through 11 really talk about what we are supposed to be and how are we supposed to respond in this world. What are we supposed to endure in this world? How are we supposed to live? Well, we're supposed to live in the midst of conflict. Conflict. It's coming if it's not already there in your life. John 15 highlights this where Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Verse 9, you might look at and say, well, blessed are the peacemakers. I'll take that verse. Let's meditate there before we get to verses 10 and 11 about being persecuted. Take peacemaking over persecution any day, really. If you peacemake the way Jesus wants you to peacemake, that's a hard road. Sometimes I think people would rather have the, the physical punishment of physical persecution rather than what it takes to do peacemaking work in the body of Christ because you're entering into some very sticky situations when you begin to involve yourself in other people's lives and in their hearts. It really depends on how you define peacemaking as to how you perceive peacemaking. Peacemaking is not being a pacifist. The world says peacemaking is avoiding conflict or skirting around it and promotes pacifism. You see that even in our country, uh, you know, our nation and society. People saying, look, you know, let's have peace at all costs. I, I really don't want to mix it up on the job or, or in this relationship. I don't want to put things at risk. And so I'll just be laid back and easygoing. There are people in Christianity that promote verse 9 with Isaiah 2.4. And they say, look, peacemaking is the call for pacifism. Really, we should avoid warfare even, even our society or country should avoid warfare at all costs. And they'll cite Isaiah 2.4. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, which is a reference to the future. But Jesus' peace is not pacifism. It's not a cheap peace. It's a peace that's costly and difficult. On a large scale and a national, on a national scale and on an interpersonal scale, peacemaking is a difficult road. Ken Sandy authored a book that I would commend to you called The Peacemaker. And he said that when you avoid peace, that's peace faking. It's being a peace faker, not a peacemaker. John Stott, he said that we should not promote cheap peace, kind of spinning out of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's cheap grace idea. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, look, grace came with a cost. It came with the cost of Jesus at the cross. Grace comes with the cost of discipleship. You have to repent and follow Jesus, and that's to be in grace. Well, in the same vein, John Stott is saying we shouldn't promote cheap peace. You have to have real peace that is followed with real effort. Ezekiel and Jeremiah both prophesied that their nation Israel was crying out for peace, peace, when there was no peace. But what I'm trying to say to you this morning is that your life is supposed to be hard. It shouldn't surprise you that Jesus is calling you to a difficult, narrow road. And sometimes when we don't recognize as our starting point that life is supposed to be hard, then we live in sort of a spiraling down depression, wondering why it's so difficult, wondering why your heart is so heavy all of the time, why you need Jesus so much. 
But Jesus actually designed it that way and has set us in a course of life, in a situation where life is difficult and we have to fight for peace. We're called to be peacemakers. The world, our country, does not want to face conflict in general. Even on a national scale, much of our country is so caught up with the idea that we should have world peace that they're surprised that we're at war at all. They pray for world peace. They promote leaders and and the UN as the saving agent against warfare. But really, because our society is depraved and sinful and fallen, war is inevitable, isn't it? I read a quote from historians Will and Ariel Durant. uh, Will was a Pulitzer Prize winner for his book, The Lessons of History. And from that book, they wrote this. War is one of the constants in history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 years have seen no war. Isn't that interesting? Even in our nation's history, only two generations during the 1800s grew up without war that was going on. And that's excluding all of the warfare that was happening in an unrecorded way with Native Americans. Albert Einstein put it this way. Said, so long as there are sovereign nations possessing great power, war is inevitable. That is not an attempt to say when it will come, but only that it is sure to come. British politician Enoch Powell said history is littered with wars which everybody knew would never happen. Put in a, l- a little bit more rustic way. Um, An anonymous writer said, peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. (laughs) Our Bible tells us war is coming. War is inevitable. Uh, If you think about the beginning of our history, you have Cain and Abel after the fall, and Cain kills Abel, and his blood still speaks. The end of the story is when Jesus returns with a rod of iron to smite the nations, a two-edged sword extending from his mouth the word of God slaying his enemies. Matthew 24 says, we look for this. Do not be alarmed. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. It must take place, but the end is not yet. So warfare is part of our reality. And I'm not trying to romanticize warfare. Warfare is horrible There's great cost. There's great sacrifice. It's also wonderful in the sense that there's great nobility. There's great triumph and heroes. But my point is to say that conflict is part of the Christian life. And we are called to be peacemakers in the midst of conflict. On a broad scale and on a personal scale. With those outside of the church and with those inside the church. We are called to promote peace, and this is not cheap peace. This is peace at a cost. Conflict is inevitable, but peace comes through violence. It comes through conflict, and it's hard. Spiritual peace comes at a tremendous cost, and sadly, the world's peace comes at a tremendous cost, and the world's peace is only defined as a truce between two people. It's like a detente where people will lay down their weapons. But the gospel's peace has hope all in and through around it because the gospel is about heart transformation. And you truly can be reconciled with people again because of the gospel, right? 
So we have every reason to believe that the cost of peace and peacemaking is worth it because we have the gospel. We have the gospel. Christians' peace is a peace that is reconciliation. And it's built from our Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, Isaiah 9, 6. He brought peace to our hearts and promises to bring peace on earth, Jeremiah 29, 11, a future hope. Again, to the point, Jesus' peace came with tremendous cost. It's not cheap. Jesus' peace came through violence, violence, not pacifism, violence. Here's a quote from John MacArthur on that. At the cross... All of man's hatred and anger was vented against God. On the cross, the Son of God was mocked, cursed, spit upon, pierced, reviled, and killed. Jesus' disciples fled in fear. The sky flashed lightning. The earth shook violently. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. Yet through that violence, God brought peace. God's greatest righteousness confronted man's greatest wickedness. And righteousness won, and because righteousness won, peace won. That's how your peace was achieved. It was, a peace, it was achieved through a violent death, through extreme circumstances. And that achievement translates down into where we live. Just because peace came through a violent cross doesn't mean now that we live a peaceful life in pacifism. We as Christians have to be people who fight for peace. We have to strive for peace. I remember sitting with a friend of mine who was witnessing to his mother. He had just come to Christ. We were both seniors in high school and we were sitting in his mother's living room and My friend was witnessing to her and kind of giving his testimony, hoping that she would come to life and she was rejecting the cross and the gospel. And he suddenly almost spontaneously quotes Jesus's words about how Jesus came to bring a sword. Matthew 10, Jesus says, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That makes for some awkward evangelism, right? Well, thank you for the pot roast. Now let me quote this verse to you, mom. And what was sad was because she was spiritually blind, the the verse just kind of went right over her head. But I never forgot it. It was just such a striking moment. Jesus' peace is a peace that comes first with a sword. What does this mean on a practical level? It means that you're called to be a person who fights for peace. And I want to just give you sort of the biblical tracks for peacemaking this morning. Several ways that you have to fight for peace. Because we fight with Jesus' weaponry, not the world's weaponry. We're not trying to stir up conflict for conflict's sake. We're not trying to pacify or peace break. We're trying to walk a narrow path that Jesus carves out for us. First of all, you have to fight personal unbelief in the gospel. 
You have to fight personal unbelief in the gospel. The reason I bring this up is we're tempted when life is hard to doubt that the gospel will be the antidote, right? We're tempted to just move away from the gospel and instead we should move towards the gospel in the midst of conflict. Fighting unbelief. It's embracing the gospel that gives you peace in the midst of a storm. And, and I can imagine that a crowd this size, if you match it with first hour, that there's a lot of conflict represented here. There's a lot of interpersonal turmoil. There's a lot of heartache. And a message like this, I hope, will draw you back to the solution, which is the gospel. One person quoted an uh, oceanographer's report saying, The earth's most violent weather occurs on the seas, but the deeper one goes, the more serene and tranquil the water becomes. This is, was very interesting to me. Oceanographers report that the deepest part of the sea are absolutely still. When those areas are dredged, they produce remnants of plant and animal life that have remained undisturbed for thousands of years. This is a picture of what we have in our hearts. The Christian's peace, the world around is swirling in tumult while we have peace in the deepest part of our being, a peace that surpasses understanding. In other words, the analogy is you've got this great storm that's happening on the high seas But as you move to the deepest part of the sea, it's absolutely still and serene. So much so that things and objects are preserved in that stillness. The gospel is that preservation. It's that stillness in your heart. It's the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It doesn't make sense. But the gospel anchors us in the midst of conflict. We need to fight unbelief in the gospel. Secondly, we need to embrace the gospel because it gives you courage to face unbelievers. Unbelievers. To be a peacemaker is not only to be someone who's promoting peace um, in the midst of the body of Christ in relationships. It's also holding the word of God up as a way of publishing peace to those who need it. Again, I believe in walking up to somebody who you've never met before and publishing the gospel and getting into a conversation about Christ. I think that's appropriate. That's real. It's exampled in the scripture over and over again. Jesus did it. The disciples did it. The apostles did it. But I also think that making disciples is striking up long-term relationships in the context of who the Lord is bringing your way and on the ball field or, you know, as you're watching your kids play sports or, Uh, in in the work environment, the coffee shop, etc., where you sit down and you are willing to bring up the gospel. Maybe even in a non-threatening conversational way where eventually the more data that comes out, the more you're publishing peace, the scarier it gets. Because eventually you're going to come to the crossroads where someone's going to have to either leave their false religion and follow Christ or stay with their false religion. Or They're going to have to cling to their sin or they're going to have to let it go. And you're drawing that line. But the gospel gives us boldness and courage to promote that kind of peace. We become like Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace. You're willing to publish it. You're willing to put it out there. And it can get awkward. 
I mean, think about Jesus talking to the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan. Jesus was a Jew. There was already racial tension. People could have been talking about them sitting there as a man talking to a woman or as a Jew talking to a Samaritan. Uh, who knows? It's already awkward, but they, they're in conversation and they're kind of bridging out of talking about drinking water from a well. And he says, uh, eventually, John four sixteen, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What, have you, what you have said is true. That's peacemaking. And that's a bit awkward, right? I mean, Jesus is just going there calling out her sin. But that was the way to get to her heart. And ultimately she believed and became an evangelist to that Samaritan community. Embracing the gospel not only gives you courage to face unbelievers, but it really gives you courage to face perhaps what's even more scary to you, and that is conflict with believers, people who are professing Christians. Ephesians 4, 3 says we are to be eager, keyword, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's something we should want and desire. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So whatever you can do to strive for and promote peace, we're supposed to be eager to do that for testimony's sake and to promote peace in the body of Christ. Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In the context of the gospel, these commands matter. We, we want to promote peace. We don't want to just lessen tensions or seek solutions. We want to promote peace on a heart level, and it's difficult to do. I remember being at uh, my church in Arkansas before here, and I was in a peacemaking moment where I'm sitting in my office, and there's a very, very successful, distinguished businessman, had a growing family, and uh, you know, his family was well known in our church and he, he was a very brilliant person and he came to a place where he wanted to confront um, a husband and a wife for some integrity issues that were related um, to his family. And, and so we're sitting there and, and ultimately as he went there with some very difficult, heartfelt um, observations that he was bringing up, I could see that he was really experiencing some deep breathing that was going on as he was working through this, and it was a tearful engagement. And then ultimately, um, you know, the other party left, and I was left with this man. And we were talking, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, that was the most difficult thing I've ever undergone in my entire life. And I thought, well, you know, this guy is a distinguished businessman who has brokered million-dollar deals. This guy is you know, beyond middle-aged and has been through a lot. And here, this sort of interaction was the most difficult thing he's ever been through. And I was thinking, maybe he's just sort of blowing it up in the moment. But the more I thought about it, is he, if he's never done that before in his Christian walk and experience, if he's never really gone for it in peacemaking, then that perhaps was one of the most difficult things he'd ever experienced. It's interesting. It is difficult. It's when we need to remember the gospel. You got to remember the gospel. You got to remember that the whole gospel is about peacemaking. That's what it is there for. Ephesians 2.14 talks about how the dividing wall of hostility was dropped between Jew and Gentile. Jesus himself is our peace 
who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall. The dividing wall was between Jew and Gentile. There was the Jewish faith of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and then all the other faiths, which is Gentiles. (laughs) And the dividing wall is broken. It's profound that God in the New Covenant, through Christ, made a one new man, a new community. That's what the cross brought you and brings us peace. Talk about racial reconciliation. There is no greater reconciling point than the cross. Romans 14, 17 It's what makes up all of our kingdom experience is peace. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, of celebrating with each other. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's what we experience in our hearts. It's what we experience in the body of Christ. And it's what we will experience one day, according to Romans 16. The God of peace, there's that title again, God the ultimate peacemaker, will soon crush Satan under your feet... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We have to fight against our personal unbelief. Secondly, we have to fight against something else when we peacemake. I mean, really, the violent work should start in our hearts. This is the the heavy lifting. The tough sledding is what we're doing in our hearts. And that comes to our second major point, which is you must fight against your own personal sin. Turn over with me to James chapter 4. This shows the root of all conflict, especially that which in within the body of Christ. James gives a stinging rebuke about conflict in the body of Christ. James chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Talking about hating from the heart. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In other words, thinking in a worldly way where you're hateful and covetous and you want things and you can't have things, that's what's building this, this storm of quarreling in your own heart first and foremost. That's what needs to be dealt with first and foremost to promote peace. That's where the violence begins is in, within our own hearts. And he's given us his Holy Spirit to deal with our heart issues. Well, a couple categories to work on, ways that we should fight. We should fight our idealism first off. Fighting your own sin of thinking, you know what, I should not have conflict. It's like waking up and saying, you know, I should be pain free. What a bummer of a way to think, right? You don't want to be that way. You, you want to presume that the fall will give you pain, both physically and spiritually. Sin is uh, a reality until we're in glory, and so we're walking a path of pain. And we oftentimes, you know, watch on TV or in movies or read in books, and, or, or you just think about other people and romanticize their life and say, oh, would that I could have their situation, right? It's so ideal, you know, and it's pain-free. They don't have any conflict ever. You know, everything is the Brady Bunch in their household, right? Everything's perfect. Of course, the Brady Bunch wasn't always perfect, all right. But life shouldn't be, it, you know, you think life shouldn't be this hard, and that's a way to, to be down. Secondly, we should fight resentment. 
And that's where you're, you're resenting the fact that someone is making your life difficult. It's where you, you go, man, my life shouldn't be so hard. And I'm beginning to resent this person or these people for what they're doing to me. You have to fight against that. You have to confess that is sin. You have to put that out of your life and clothe yourself in humility and trust your, your heart to the gospel. Thirdly, fight your own personal pride. You fight against self-righteousness where you prop yourself up and believe that you've got all the answers or you're completely without sin within the midst of a conflict. You have to put that away too and put off pride and say, Lord, humble me first and foremost so that I can be a peacemaker. Don Carson, the theologian from Trinity Evangelical Seminary in Illinois, said, keeping calm in the midst of a heated debate, respectfully listening to both viewpoints with fairness and courtesy is distinctively Christian. To be Christian is not to put your dukes up. To be Christian is to listen. It's to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. James 1.20 says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Proverbs 15.1, here's the banner verse for all marital conflict. I know that many of you have never had marital conflict, but look, just in case you have or you want to counsel someone else, here's Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I tell you, it really works. Being soft, being deliberate, humbling yourself, it turns wrath away. Harsh words, they stir the pot. They hit the hornet's nest. Don Carson again. He will not, a peacemaker will not confuse issues with ego. Fearful lest he be guilty of generating more heat than light, he will turn, he will learn to lower his voice and smile more broadly in proportion to the intensity of the argument. This is what Jesus did. I love 1 Peter chapter 2. It gives us a window into his heart as he was doing the greatest act of peacemaking, dying on the cross, as he was undergoing extreme punishment, being mocked and reviled. 1 Peter 2.23 gives us a window into how he was peacemaking and what he was doing in his heart. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is what he did. As he was being mocked, he looked up through the eyes of faith and opened his heart to his heavenly father and continued to entrust himself to his heavenly father. Reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 3 where it says to cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. It's a continual casting of your anxieties upon him. It's a continual entrusting of your heart vertically to your heavenly father as you're dealing with the onslaught of pain against you. Well, next, you also need to fight rationalizing issues away. It's, again, the idea of passive peace or cheap peace, of peace faking, of letting things go instead of dealing with it. And our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, and they want to let us out of dealing with conflict. Here's one that is, I think, especially convicting. We need to fight against our own personal gossip. In the midst of conflict, there is a great temptation to gossip, to talk about your issue, to spread and sow discord amongst the body of Christ. James 1.19, 
Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Lloyd-Jones, the pastor I've quoted a few times in this series, says that the natural man is so strong in us, you often hear Christian people say, I must express my mind. I must. I have to. I'm going to explode unless I express it. And he very clearly in his writings on the Beatitudes says, you need to work out the discipline of being silent I'm not saying you can't have someone bear your burden or you can't share things in appropriately closed um, um, you know, confidences. However, you need to be careful to obey the word here. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, stirring the pot, but love covers all offenses. This, these verses are not talking about overlooking transgressions. It's talking about keeping silent over them. Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Well, you also finally have to fight personal comfort. It's easy to just give up on a matter. It's easy just to sort of candy coat a matter or to put some plaster over some cracked walls. And that analogy is born out of Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 13. I would invite you now to turn to Ezekiel 13. I want to look at a good portion of scripture that brings out this analogy of people who were faking peace and they were plastering over the cracked walls. You know, Ezekiel is an interesting study because he was a young man of 25 who was part of the Jerusalem community. Of 10,000 people, he and his wife being two of them, who were captured into Babylonian captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. You'll remember the northern kingdom of Israel split. You have Israel and Judah. And that happened in the 700 B.C. time period. And, and that, was, that was after the reign of Saul and David and Solomon. Then there was that split in the Assyrians. They captured the northern kingdom for a couple hundred years. And then the southern kingdom... Um, was captured by Babylon, the neighboring community underneath Assyria. And Nebuchadnezzar was in charge of that. And he was trying to indoctrinate the religious community with Babylonian thoughts. So he, would, he was bringing 10,000 more from Jerusalem into captivity. Ezekiel was one of them. And they were not enslaved uh, to be imprisoned, but they were locked into that society and held there captive nevertheless. And what was going on is people were saying, look, I am a prophet of the Lord. And they were false prophets who were standing up and they were saying, look, the sin that you were committing as God's nation really wasn't that bad. God's wrath is kind of appeased now. And so we can just kind of candy coat the sin issue and, and, and you can expect to be delivered home to Jerusalem real soon. That's the context for what Ezekiel is told to say by the Lord in Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel is standing up against these false prophets who are candy-coating the sin issue or whitewashing it. Verse 10, precisely because they, the false teachers, have misled my people, saying, peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people, following that message, the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. And so Ezekiel was to say to those who smear it with whitewash, that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain and you, O great hailstones, will fall and a stormy wind break out. 
And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? So he talks about how this wrath and judgment will come. The deluge of rain will come. The great hailstones will fall. And he says in verse 14, I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and break it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you will perish in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. This will I spend my wrath upon the wall. Thus, I will spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. So the judgment will come upon the people who follow the lie of the false prophets, who are willing to just peace fake, who are willing to just say, look, God's judgment doesn't matter. I'm ready to just go back home and live on my own terms. And this is what he says. The prophets of Israel who prophesied, the false prophets, concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord, those are the ones who are going to be smashed. You know, there's a couple reasons I bring this analogy up. One is that we dare not peace fake and just candy coat issues because eventually God is going to break that down. But secondly... If you do not know Christ, then you are a picture of this where your heart is is being propped up with false teaching that could be called whitewash. You might be trusting in sort of a candy-coated gospel that's no gospel at all. You might be thinking that it's just good enough to be around this Christian environment or to have Christian friends or to have prayed a prayer, but really you, you're, you're propping yourself up and just covering the cracks in your heart and in your life with a whitewash that will not stand up in the day of judgment. The walls one day will come crashing down and what we need to have is we need to be rooted and grounded on solid ground. You remember the the parable and analogy that Jesus brought up where he said, don't build your house on the sand, but build your house upon what? A rock, a foundation. And the foundation is the gospel truth. It's that Christ died for our sins and he is the sufficient payment and was the ultimate peacemaker for us. And he's the only peacemaker for us. It's the only way to heaven. But secondly, again, we're warned as Christians not to create whitewash relationships where we're using sort of Elmer's glue to hold together rocky foundations that are just going to split apart. I know it's tough to walk this road, to walk a hard road where you risk being hurt or misunderstood, but the pain is worth it. The pain is worth it. It's worth it to be right with God and it's worth it to see God invade relationships that are broken in your life. You say, where do I begin? Well, look at Matthew 5. Remember Matthew 5. Remember the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes and climb the Beatitudes as a ladder of grace. Start with being poor in spirit. Start with mourning over your sins. Start with being meek. Start with, start with hunger, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Start with being merciful. Start with being pure in heart. And then be a peacemaker. This is your stair step of grace towards being a peacemaker. What do you gain from being a peacemaker? Look at the end of verse 9. What do you gain? It says, for they shall be called sons of God. Now again, the Beatitudes are not just about superficial happiness. The Beatitudes are about being approved of 
by God that you are a son of God. Now, this phrase, sons of God, is an approval that is more intimate than just a status approval. It's not just God saying, okay, you're in, you're in, you're in. It's not that. It's God saying, you are my intimate child of whom I love. That's what he's saying here with sons of God. In a a Hebrew culture, to be called a son of God is to be an intimate child. The King James Version calls it children of God, but... The specific translation is sons of God. It means to be a partaker of God's character. And shall be here is a future passive. It's the idea that you are guaranteed this sonship status throughout all eternity. All of eternity will be made up of millions and millions, myriads upon myriads of worshipers who are sons and daughters of their father and they are peacemakers. Just worshiping the ultimate peacemaker. It's very personal with God. To be called a son of God is to be thought of as his intimate child. And if you've had a child, you know what that intimacy is like. Where you look into the eyes of your children and think, I would give my life for this child. Right? I mean, I was looking at this verse and this phrase and thinking about my children and thinking, I would give my life for that, that, you know child over there that's making that mess right now. I, I would give myself to that child. And you would, and you know, no matter what is going on, you, you would give your heart to your children because you love them. Do you think that God thinks of you that way? I mean, when God is calling you to peacemake in this way, on this difficult road, we need to think that, don't we? We need to remember that God loves us intimately. We are what Zechariah 2.8 called Israel. We are God's, the apple of his eye. The apple is, in the eye, is considered the cornea. It's the most sensitive, most uh, exposed, most uh, area of the eye that is to be protected. That's how God thinks of you. You are the apple of his eye. He knows your difficulties and your afflictions. Psalm 56, 8, you have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Do you know that God knows of your tossings? He knows of your anxieties. He knows of your fears. He knows of your conflicts. He knows of your heavy heart. And he has allowed sovereignly for it to be this way. And he loves you all the more and will undergird you and support you and will enable you to be a peacemaker. In Hebrew times, ancient times, people would would sorrow and cry and they would collect their tears in a bottle, literally. And God is building off of that analogy to say, I love you that intimately that I'm using my bottle to collect your tears. That's what God is doing for you and it's what he's done for me. He's called us to a difficult life, but he undergirds us with his paternal care. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for this study in your word. I thank you that you are the ultimate peacemaker. And Lord, we worship you in spirit and truth because you've brought peace to our hearts. And we thank you for that reconciliation. I pray, God, as you bring conflict and situations into our lives and opportunities to peacemake, I pray that we would, by your grace and obedience, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You'd stand now for our final benediction. Invite Steve Pauls to come and close us in a word of prayer. We'll be here to counsel you, meet with you. An information table is over there for any needs that you would have. And my wife and I will be in the back to greet you as you leave.